Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you do speak to us with your own voice this morning. We ask that you would speak, would you convict, would you confront and critique us, but be present among us to apply the balm of the gospel to us. And Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. In the winter of 1925, a deadly illness known as diphtheria ravaged the remote city in western Alaska known as Nome. Children were the ones who were most affected because they had weaker immune systems and they more easily spread germs. And the closest stockpiles of medication were, unfortunately, about 675 miles away in Fairbanks, Alaska. And because of the winter storms that year, Nome was inaccessible by plane and by train. So the only folks who could get in and out had to get in and out on dog sleds. But of course, you, you probably know the story. If you were a child of the 90s or had a kid in the 90s, you know of the name Balto. The 1995 Universal Pictures animated movie immortalized that name. Balto, this, the story goes that Balto ran the whole 675 miles to Fairbanks, picked up the medicine, and then ran all the way back through ugly, nasty winter storms. And he saved all the children and earned himself a statue in New York City's Central Park. The unfortunate reality is that that story is not true. The animated film is not the true story. The immortalized Balto that I remember in the 90s is not the Balto of history. In fact, the medication got to Nome through a series of relays with 20 different sled teams carrying the medication to Nome, passing it off to the next team. Balto was simply the last dog. He was the last leg of the race. He was the last leg of the relay at only 55 miles of the 674. But there's another dog, another dog who carried the lion's share of the work. His name is Togo. Not Toto, but Togo. Togo's journey was the longest by over 200 miles, and it included whiteout blizzards, where Togo had to navigate through the storm rather than allowing his rider or the, the musher, Leonard Seppala, to navigate because Leonard couldn't see past his dogs. He could barely see them. So Togo had to navigate for him. He crossed about 50 miles of open ice known as the Norton Sound. The ice was cracking all around him. And not only that, but he saved his team and his musher, Leonard Seppala, by swimming through the ice-cold water with an air temperature reaching to negative 30 degrees Fahrenheit. He swam and then got out and continued to run. But Togo, in popular culture and in the history books, is diminished. His significance in the landscape of dog sledding, not to mention his significance in the lives of those children whom he saved, is undervalued and it's underemphasized. Balto was celebrated. A reporter was there at the end of the race and he needed somebody to acknowledge as the hero. So Balto was celebrated by the press in the late 1920s because it was convenient. He was an attractive dog. He was a 
beautiful Siberian husky, looked strong, he looked like he had great stamina, and he just happened to finish the relay. But Togo's significance was diminished. The dog who did the lion's share of the work was undervalued and underemphasized. And friends, we do something similar with the scriptures. We diminish the significance of the word of God and we settle for the convenient. We settle for the convenient truths that those things that make our lack of faith more palatable, that make our lack of faith easier to handle to outsiders and to ourselves. So we rely on family history, on psychological diagnoses to explain our weaknesses and our failures. We rely on graduate degrees for success rather than learning it from scripture. We listen to podcasts and we read blogs to teach us how to raise our children. And while those things aren't bad, they aren't best. They aren't God. And so we diminish the significance of the word of God, we run to a host of other things rather than running to the word of God to teach us how we are to live and who we are to worship and give our lives to. But here, the writer of Hebrews isn't pulling punches. He's emphasizing the importance of the living word of God in the lives of every Christian. So far, as he's, he's emphasized the significance of Jesus as the final message from God. He's better He is the exclamation mark on all that God says. He's superior to the angelic messengers who delivered the law to Moses. And in fact, he's superior to Moses himself. Moses was simply a servant. Jesus, earlier in chapter 4, it says he's a son. He's the son of God, and he's faithful over the house of God as a son. And Jesus is the rest offered to us by God. He's accomplished that rest He's entered into that rest, and it's only through Jesus that we too enter that rest. But we enter that rest through faith in him, through believing Jesus, through believing who he is and what he's done for us. We enter into that rest. And so it's fitting that the author moves here to emphasize the importance of the word of God on our faith so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, that disobedience in the wilderness. Those people, those Israelites who wandered in the wilderness refusing to acknowledge who God is and what he expects of them. They didn't believe. And so God's word here, it tells us that God's word exposes every area of unbelief in our lives. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Y'all, there's not one square inch over your entire humanity that God doesn't see and that God doesn't speak to. Not one square inch. He sees everything, he speaks to everything, and he exposes unbelief. But how's he do that? How's he accomplish this work of exposing our unbelief? We see first that God's word confronts us with his claims. Look at verse 12. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. God's word here is pictured as an instrument of war. 
It's seen as an instrument used by God to divide the indivisible, the soul and the spirit, to break the unbreakable joints and marrow. You're not supposed to be able to break these things or divide them, but God's word does, and he pierces, he uses that sword, and he pierces by laying before you his claims. And these claims are the same ones that he laid before Israel in the wilderness. The first being who he is, his claim of personal identity, who he is as God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's what he lays before them, his identity and what he's done for them. And then the second is what he expects of you, how he has ordained life to work best. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any images for worship shall not take the Lord's name in vain, and so on. How life works best. But the problem with the wilderness generation, that problem remains for us, is that they bucked those two claims. Who God is, what he's done for us, and what he expects of us. They thought they knew who God was and how he worked, and so they formed a golden calf and they worshipped it. They gave themselves to a golden figure. And then they refused to enter into that land that God told them to enter into, that he had promised hundreds of years beforehand, a land flowing with milk and honey, but they refused because the people were giants. And so he didn't allow them to enter into his rest because of their unbelief. Their unbelief was exposed because God laid before them his claims, and he confronts us in the same way. And when he does, he invites you to either obey or to disobey, to believe or disbelieve. There's no middle ground when God's word pierces you. You either listen to him and obey him and believe him, or you don't. And we see, the, we see this dynamic throughout the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts. When Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, he explains who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and then lays before us his claims. And the people, it says, are cut to the heart. And that day they devote themselves to God. And 3,000 people were added to that number because they were cut to the heart. But then just a few days later, or a few chapters later in Acts, the apostles are standing before a council of religious men. And they do something similar. They lay before the religious figures, this council, the claims of God. And it says that when this council heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. So when we're confronted with the claims of God, a division occurs. And we're required to make a decision. We will either listen and you will hear the voice of God and not harden your heart. Or you will harden your heart and you will disbelieve. That's the dynamic at work. And this isn't simply a one-time deal. You know, this isn't a, a thing that happens when you're seven, eight, or nine. This is the whole of the Christian life. This is the ongoing experience of the Christian. We place ourselves under the word of God. We place ourselves in submission to God's word, and we allow ourselves to be held accountable to it. And God confronts us in whatever way he deems necessary in that season of life and in that moment. I had a Greek professor my first summer in seminary. We had just moved to St. Louis, 
And this guy on the first day of class on a Monday morning, he sits us all down and he says, you're going to be learning four things this summer. He said, you're going to be learning Greek grammar. You're going to be relearning English grammar because you forgot it all. You're going to be learning Greek vocabulary, lots of words, like 300 plus words in five weeks. It's pretty significant. Yes, you should say, whoa, that's that's intense. But then lastly, he says, you will be learning whatever God feels like teaching you in this season of life. And y'all, that is the whole of Christian life. You're going about your life and you're doing life and then you realize that God is working on you and he's confronting you with his claims. We are constantly throughout the whole of our Christian life, running into the guardrails of God's commandments. And we are being confronted by his claims and realize that we fall far short. And he confronts us because he's not content in letting us live in unbelief. He's not content in letting us continue to live out our lives in disobedience. And so we run into those guardrails. As you're living life, you run into God's commandments as he confronts you with his claims. And then second, God's word critiques our heart's motivations. Look at how verse 12 concludes. It concludes with the reality that the word of God discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. See, in the Bible, the heart is most often refers to the seat of your humanity, the place from which everything else flows. Your thoughts, your actions, your reactions to people's actions, your emotions, your desires, Everything flows from the heart. And so you'll hear things like Jesus saying in Luke 6, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when the author says the word of God discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, he's saying that God is critiquing your innermost motivations, the reasons you get up in the morning. He sees that. And he speaks a word to it. God sees down deep into the dark recesses of your soul to that place that no one else can see, to that place that you yourself can't even see unless you're paying close attention. And he puts his finger there. He puts his finger on that place and he speaks to the things that motivate you to do what you do. He discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and he questions you. He questions and critiques your motivations. He asks, is it enough? He asks, will that last? He asks, when you get what you're looking for, will you be satisfied? And all of us know, down deep in our hearts, that the answer is a resounding no, It's not going to be enough. No, I won't be satisfied when I get it. No, it will not last 
When God peers into the depth of your motivation and he critiques them, you realize that the things that you've been pushing for or the things that have been pushing you, that have been motivating you to do what you do are simply not enough. Unless God is your motivating factor, love for God and love for neighbor, they will not last. You won't be content because you were made for more. Let me tell you about how this kind of this dynamic works in the Christian life. You listen to a sermon or you are in a Bible study, you're studying the scriptures with your friends, uh, or you're reading your Bible at home alone, and you have this kind of aha moment. This like light bulb goes on. It turns on in you, and you realize something happened this week or this season, you realize something in your life and give you a few illustrations. You look back on your week and you realize you blew up at your child for getting a bad grade or uh, not doing well on a test or failing in some capacity. And you realize that you weren't blowing up at them because you love them. You were blowing up at them because you need them to succeed because you're living vicariously through them and you realize that's not enough. And God speaks to that. He says, you're right, it's not enough. Your kids' successes and failures are their successes and failures. And your successes and failures as a human being are not necessarily tied to your children. The success in parenting is to Teach your children to love God and to love neighbor. That's what God tells us. Not to get an A on the geometry quiz. Or you look back and you realize that you've been appeasing your spouse, been doing all they ask, just trying to keep the peace. But it's not because you love them. It's because you need them to love you. You realize that you need their love in a way that's tragically unhealthy. And so God speaks to that place and says, no, my love is much greater than their love. My love is infinitely more than they could ever love you. So he puts his finger there. Or maybe you realize that you've been neglecting your family because you need to succeed in work. And God says, no, I've called you to be a dad and a husband as well as doing well vocationally. So God puts his finger on those heart motivations, on the things that push us to do what we do. And we realize that our motivations are just far too weak, that they won't last, and that they're ultimately not gonna be enough. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday of the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Friends, that is the whole of the Christian life. God critiquing our heart's motivations because our motivations are just too weak and God is not content in letting you live there. And so he will do his work of confronting you and critiquing you He will expose your heart's motivations and the areas of your life where you just simply aren't believing him. And he will do it your whole life until you see him in glory.
So when he confronts us with his claims and he critiques our motivations, how do we respond? What's this passage say about how we are to engage God when no creature is hidden from his sight, but when we are laid bare and we are exposed to him? That the depth of our soul is exposed to him. How do we respond? Well, the passage simply emphasizes that we respond to this living word, this active word that is constantly working on us. We respond with belief. We acknowledge that he's right. We acknowledge that his interpretation of the story is the accurate interpretation of the story. We believe in what he has done for us through Jesus, and we will enter into that rest. There's a movie on Disney Plus. If you have Disney Plus, uh, good for you. Disney just came out with a movie called Togo, and it's remarkable. What the movie does is it more accurately depicts the events of that winter in 1925. It more accurately depicts the, the significance and the importance of Togo in the landscape of this story. And y'all, that's what we're to do. We are to acknowledge God's accurate interpretation of history. We are to believe when confronted by God's identity and his expectations when he critiques our motivations, y'all, we are to believe that his evaluation is accurate because he makes no mistakes. He is God, you are not. We believe in who he is, what he's done for us in Jesus and what he expects of us. And we respond that way because it's in that place in that place of exposure, in that place of nakedness before God, in that place of faith, in that place of belief, that we experience the rest offered to us in Jesus. We realize that God has much more in store for that rest than we could ever think or dream of. We realize that God has more in store for us than those weak motivations. God has more in store for you than mud pies in a slum. He does have a holiday at the sea in store. And so we simply believe God's not content to make you a better person. That will happen as you are sanctified. That will happen as you are confronted by him and critiqued by him and you believe in him, you will become a better person. But he's in the process of transforming you into the image of his son from one degree of glory to another. So friends, when you hear that still small voice, that word from God, listen. When you hear that voice of God speak to you, confront you with his claims and his commands and critique your motivations, believe. Because he makes no wrong evaluations. Remain sensitive to his voice. Believe in him. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you are God who speaks to us. That you don't leave us alone in this world, that we are not wandering, that we don't have to wander aimlessly. 
seeking the affections of this world or um, leaning on the wisdom of this world. But we know that you're the one who speaks. You are the one who acts because your word is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And we ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us, strengthen us to believe, strengthen us to listen to your voice when you speak. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.